as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated. Humility is something of a paradoxical virtue in our contemporary scene. On the one hand, I think we Americans love to root for the underdog in a movie or on the field who is taking on some arrogant or overconfident foe. But on the other hand, our workplaces, our schools, or seemingly all of our society is, is set up to reward those who self-promote, who advocate or market for themselves, or who show that they're better than everyone else. From a Christian perspective, it's clear that humility is a central virtue for followers of Christ. Christ, who, as St. Paul describes, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. For those of us who have committed our lives to following the pattern of Christ's life, humility is a necessary feature of our earthly sojourn. But in addition to this imitation motivation for humility, what I'd like to make the case for this morning is that humility is required for those who wish to accept the grace of God including the grace of salvation. Because salvation is a gift, and all gifts must be received, and the reception of a gift requires one to humble oneself, even just enough to acknowledge that what one receives is not from the self, but from another. Earlier this week, I got to spend a few days with some other pastors uh, learning a bit about the psychology of humility. I'm grateful to have been invited to participate in a, as a, in a fellowship with the Center for Pastor Theologians. It's a, it's a small group of these uh, cohort, uh, my cohort of fellows met in Oak Park earlier this week for prayer and, and encouragement and sharing our personal and pastoral challenges. And it was, it was a really rich time. And so I'm, I'm grateful for these pastors out here who are interested in uh, trying to avoid the narcissism and pride that often afflicts church leaders. And, uh, and I'm also grateful that All Souls gives you some space to go do professional development kinds of things. So thanks a lot. But what I want to sketch here today is that humility isn't just for those in leadership, although there might be, as of us, might be more susceptible to falling into those vices that are the opposite of humility, but, but that all Christians are, are called to follow the example of our Lord by cultivating a posture of humility. And all Christians need to be humble in order to rightly receive the grace that God is offering to us. So here's a little quick teaching on one thing we learned this week about humility from one of the articles that we read. So one of the articles distinguishes between intrapersonal and interpersonal humility and offers these characteristics. Here's a quotation from one of these articles. Intrapersonally, humility involves the degree to which someone seems to have a relatively accurate view of self. Expressions of this aspect of humility might include the ability to acknowledge and own one's limitations, recognize the fallibility of one's own beliefs, and have a clear sense of one's own strengths and weaknesses. Interpersonally, humility involves the degree to which one has an orientation towards the needs and well-being of others. People might judge this aspect of humility through interpersonal behaviors that indicate the, the restraint of the ego, modest self-presentation, and respectful interpersonal interaction." End quote. And we talked a bit about how the second aspect of humility, the interpersonal humility, is characterized by an openness to others, a willingness to receive another person as they are and to receive what might, they might be able to give to us. Humble people both have an accurate view of themselves and their limitations, 
while also being oriented to and open to others. I think both of these sides of humility, both intra and interpersonal humility, are helpful ways of thinking about Christian humility as well. For both angles are apt for how, how we think about the humility needed to receive the gift of grace. By having an, an accurate view of ourselves and of our limitations, we know that, as one of my favorite colleagues puts it, we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. And thus we can be interpersonally open to what God offers us through Christ. Now forgive me if I've told the story before, but about a decade ago, my younger brother was visiting my family and I, and we took our kids, my kids to the park. I think my oldest might have been about five or so at the time. And he was climbing on some jungle gyms like you do at the park. And my brother mentioned to me how he thought it was totally unhelpful for parents to tell their kids to be careful, like one often hears when you go to the park, because kids don't really know what it means in that specific context. So I think my five-year-old at the time was climbing on some kind of precarious spot on the play structure, and my brother yelled out, know your limitations, <laughs> which, which didn't seem to me to be all that helpful. <laughs> but humble people will, will know their limitations. They'll have an accurate view of themselves and what they can do, and they'll restrain their own egos to be open to the instruction and feedback of others. Now, turning to our scriptures for today, our reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, I think, uh, paints a picture for why grace is needed for our salvation, the gift of grace. Paul writes this, Paul writes, For the promise that Abraham would inherit the world did not come to him or his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So think about this dynamic this way. Uh, and we talked a bit about this when we were in Romans earlier in, in Lent. I think there's a pretty clear distinction um, between a wage and a gift. Uh, a wage is, is, is something that one receives when, when they earn something, uh, something that's owed to someone, whereas a gift is something one receives that's not owed. And we deal with this distinction all the time for those of us who are employed. You all pay me as being your rector, you pay Father Rob, you pay Sydney to play the organ. We have roles and responsibilities and job descriptions, and, and then we get compensation, we get, we get paid for this. But gifts aren't like that. Gifts are given. They aren't earned. They aren't owed. What Paul's talking about here is that if the, the promise to Abraham was dependent on the law, then it'd be dependent on stuff humans could do, but not on grace. The promise, then, wouldn't be a gift. It'd be a wage. It'd be a compensation for the work that Abraham and others had done in following the law. But, Paul's saying, this isn't actually the way it was with Abraham, and it isn't actually the way it is for us, both for Father Abraham and for us Christians. The promise of inheriting the world, the, the promise of eternal life in and with God, is dependent on the free gift, the grace of God, which is offered to us in and through the work of Jesus Christ. Salvation is a gift, it's not a wage. Paul goes on, he says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Faith itself is, I think, a result of grace. I take it that faith is a, a supernatural empowerment by the Holy Spirit to believe and trust in the promises of God. It's an intellectual act that we cannot execute of our own power. And yet faith is what grasps or receives the promise. And this is a gift because it's not something we do or earn for ourselves. And I think we see something similar playing out in the interaction that St. Matthew had with Jesus in our reading from his gospel this morning. Here is Matthew, a tax collector, someone who's 
probably acutely aware of things like wages and compensation. And, and he's not doing anything remotely related to Jesus or Jesus' ministry prior to hearing the call of Christ. As the text said, he's literally just sitting there at his tax booth when Jesus comes up and calls Matthew to be one of his disciples. Now, brief caveat, I think sometimes I think we have, or at least I have, this idea of Jesus kind of walking around and like zapping people and all of a sudden they're like his students following around Nazareth. Probably more likely is someone like Matthew had some previous awareness of Jesus, like he'd heard the buzz. He knew Jesus had been up to some pretty provocative teaching. Just prior to our reading today in Matthew 9, Jesus had healed a paralytic. Maybe Matthew saw that or he knew about it. So Matthew probably had some idea of what was going on with this new teacher. But the text gives no indication that Matthew had been doing anything particularly noteworthy that would have earned Jesus' attention or, or put Matthew in a situation where he should have been compensated for some prior devotion to Christ. No, I, rather, the, the, the abruptness of the passage is appropriate for the manner in which Jesus' calling of Matthew, I think, is illustrative of the nature of salvation as a gift. It's grace, not a wage. Jesus calls Matthew, and he arose and followed Christ. So maybe we can see here how humility is then requisite for us to be apt receivers of the gift of grace. When one is not in a posture of humility, one thinks that one has everything you need and you got it all for yourself. You can figure it out. You can just do it your own, on yourself. And the narcissist is one who needs nothing. But this is not in having an accurate view of ourselves and is not being open to others. Rather, the person who's humble toward God accurately sees that they aren't able to get salvation, the promise, and they aren't owed this either. And the humble person is open to the other, open to God, open to receiving from God what we need for salvation. And not only at this moment of, the first moment of salvation, I think what this perhaps tells us practically is that although salvation is a gift and that grace comes from it is a gift, this, this grace is poured out to us, to use a Pauline phrase, on a daily basis. And so we continually need to be put into a posture to receive this gift the posture of humility. That's why I might, with a little bit of liturgical theology, I think we have a regular practice in our liturgy that can help us to cultivate a posture of humility. And that's the prayer of humble access, which we pray in our Eucharistic liturgy. This is a classic Anglican prayer that uh, comes after the consecration of the elements, but before our reception. Um, it's one of these optional prayers, and we paused this during Eastertide, but we, we brought it back here for ordinary time. And I think a prayer like this, if we let it tutor us in our posture towards God, can help to cultivate a posture of humility that's necessary for receiving the gifts that God offers to us. So just walking through the first part, the prayer begins like so. We do not presume to come to this your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We hear that part. We do not come trusting in our own righteousness. I think trusting in our own righteousness would be like envisioning our relationship with God like a wage or a compensation. It would be thinking that we've done something that means God owes us some payment. But that's not reality. As I mentioned, one of the ingredients of humility is having an accurate view of oneself, of knowing and acknowledging one's own limitations. And the next line in the prayer of humble access gives us an opportunity to admit and own just that. It says, 
we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. A robust um, understanding of both our finitude and our sinfulness, I think, ought to lead us to think accurately about our place in the world, our, our place in God's ordering of creation. And this place means that we're not owed anything by God. We're not earning our keep. We're not worthy even to gather up the crumbs under the table of the Lord. However, lest we allow ourselves to get too negative about ourselves, we have to remember that an accurate view of ourselves and our limitations includes the fact that we are beloved children of God as well. Tim Keller, now of blessed memory, has a famous quip uh, that in the gospel we learn, quotation here, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same time we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I think this roughly uh, expresses the same idea that's beautifully expressed in our prayer. We're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose character is always to have mercy. These are the two sides of the reality of our situation that think ought to lead us to have an accurate view of ourselves and thus to a posture of humility. We're not worthy in ourselves, but in Christ, in the mercy and grace of God, we are accepted as precious children of the almighty God of the universe. Bringing back the humility literature, intrapersonal humility gives us an accurate view of ourselves and our limitations, knowing that we're not worthy of the presence of God. And yet interpersonal humility doesn't just leave us in this sorry state, but opens us to the God whose character is always to have mercy. And so in this prayer and, and from this humble posture, we ask, we request, we ask for a gift from our gracious, grace-filled God that we might be made worthy, that we might be accepted, so that we might evermore dwell with Christ and he in us. And I'd contend, too, that implicit in this request is an ask for help to have the humble posture needed to receive the gift that God wants to give. Humility might be in short supply in modern life, but we followers of Christ have many motivations for cultivating this virtue. First, it's, it's the posture that Christ himself acted out in the incarnation and in the work of the atonement. But two, as Paul shows, Humility is needed for us to receive the gift of the promise of inheriting the world that was first offered to Abraham and now is offered to us, his descendants. So may we cultivate this posture, especially in and through our prayers, that we might have an accurate view of ourselves and our limitations, and to be open to God, so that, like St. Matthew, we too can receive the grace to answer readily the call of Jesus Christ. Amen.